So since it's still May, we wanted to do a labor episode for the podcast, but given that we've had a lot of things happening in Edmonton recently, we thought that there were more timely things that we could touch on. So there's been so many things happening on the violence front in Edmonton. Yeah, we want to revisit a few things and also talk about, um, yeah, the police and how they fit within this conversation and yeah, just a lot of news stories. Um, And I'm joined by Nicholas today to break things down. Hi, everyone. Uh, Yeah, we just thought we could do a little, I don't know, I guess kind of fireside chat here uh, (laughs) rather than our, I guess, usual, a little bit more structured um, episode format. And um, yeah, we're recording this uh, late at night because um, we have to wait for the honking to stop after the uh, Oilers won. Um, but yes. luckily, they uh, ended the series, so we won't be getting um, any more of that honking, at least for a few days here. Um, God bless. Yeah, you can probably tell how we feel about the Oilers, but we maybe will not say anything here um, so as to avoid um, backlash. I can agree with that. I, I, I don't I don't want to be characterized as the only Oilers hater in Edmonton. Or at yeah. least we don't we don't want that characterization. So we'll 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 stop it there. Yeah. Why not Oilers haters though? But yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I think one thing in our last episode uh, that we touched on is just the conversation on uh, school resource officers. Um, obviously, friend of the show, Bashir, had helped put together a research project that released data um, earlier this year on uh, the harmful effects of school resource officers and having police in our schools. Uh, in the last episode, we detailed some of that as well as critiqued the media's tendency to cover the school resource officer program in a very favorable way and in a way that parrots police talking points and doesn't really hold that institution accountable the way the media should be, um, should be holding institutions accountable. So basically the critique that we have for the media every time um, and, uh, Omar, we got some interesting, uh, listener feedback actually last time, um, which by the way, the fact that we even have listener feedback, we were like overjoyed. Um, <laughs> yeah, wow. Exactly. Someone's reached, someone's actually listening to the episode, reaching out, engaging. Yeah. We're really happy about that. So, um, <laughs> if you're, yes. uh, if you're by chance, um, hearing this, uh, we would love to hear from you too. Definitely. I will drop my email in here even. It's my first name, Omar at is this for real. That's O-U-M-A-R at is this for real.ca. Love to get engagement. Um, yeah, that's thank you for saying that, Nicholas. Yeah. But this engagement was um, a little bit special because it was, I guess, negative um, feedback, which I've definitely had um, pretty long history of um, freaking out about negative feedback in my journalism days, um, especially when I worked at the Gateway. Um, Let's just say that when you tie your personal value or um, your sense of self in the work that you do um, and people criticize it mercilessly, um, that can definitely take a toll. 
I'm not in that place anymore. But the feedback that we got was about this SRO episode and um, essentially what this person was saying in a very long-winded way was that our coverage, they found it kind of crossed the line and was quite inconsistent and bordering on dishonest. Um, which, you know, these are pretty big um, accusations or it's pretty, pretty negative feedback. Um, and this person kind of went through and and went through in, in a point by point way to, I guess, dissect things that were said on the podcast that characterized the media in um, what they thought was a, a, a narrow way that ignored other things Um that was fair, you know, the media did a fair job of covering the SRO issue in their in their eyes, and we did an unfair job of characterizing them. But what I think is really missing here from the overall um, intention in this email is, is the larger issue at hand and how we view coverage of police in Edmonton, not through this, I guess, narrow lens of how the police are being coverage, or sorry, how the police are being covered, but also within the larger sense of what else does the media cover? So there's a larger idea of what's covered, what's not covered, and how those decisions are made and, and why those decisions are made. Um, so when we talk about, for example, how the police write an article when the SRO program receives awards or the police, or sorry, the media gives the police a platform to um, I guess, yeah, celebrate themselves. We shouldn't just look at this within a, a, within a police context and within that conversation. We should also look at how other people are treated or how other organizations or institutions are treated. Um, and I think when we look at that broader picture um, and we look at the broader point that we're trying to make, um, that's what's important. And that's kind of the spirit of the podcast, essentially. Um, so... Yeah, I just wanted to talk a bit about that feedback, I guess, and just like um, how the goal of the show and what we talk about is to try to reinforce these main ideas that we have um, about failing institutions, about the problems and the struggles that people face um, being impacted by these institutions, and um, yeah, our belief that doesn't it doesn't have to be this way that they're all that there are alternatives um and yeah that's that's at the crux of everything we do so um it'd be good to focus on that and have a discussion on that instead of um yeah all the nitty nitty gritty little things that i think um can be discussed forever while the world basically burns in the background um of that you know very uh chin strokey um <laughs> intellectual debate that can uh that can happen yeah, and I see. I think that's where we really see the problem, even just with this idea of objective journalism, right? Like this listener in their um, scathing feedback uh, kind of took us to town for not being objective in our journalism. And I think when we were thinking about how to respond to this person, because we did respond and we do respond to any feedback we get. So again, please reach out and uh, <laughs> send us feedback <laughs> if you have any. Um, like when, when we were thinking of how to, how to respond um, to this person, uh, we, I think, really didn't, really didn't want to dive down the rabbit hole of really what is objective and how to be the most fair 
and balanced and um, how to cover both sides, so to speak, most equally, because I think actually our critique of the media is in that idea of objective journalism. Um, you know, we view these institutional media frameworks as harmful and supportive of oppressive powers, and they position themselves as objective and get to define what objective means, but they're still biased, and you can see that in yeah, how they cover issues and uh, what they choose to not cover. Definitely. And so actually our critique of media is a critique of this idea um, that uh, ob objective journalism um, is the goal. So we're also <laughs> in our critique of that not trying to uphold those ideas. No. No, no. The world, I think, would be better if we had less, um, you know, so-called objective journalism and we actually started talking about, um, you know, the reality of what's going on here. Because I think there's so much time spent on, you know, what do both sides believe? Can we find this supposed, um, you know, middle ground or this supposed um, objectivity, this supposed, I guess, removal from the situation or this dispassionate um, analysis? When in reality, that's it's just fake. This is just like a way to, um, you know, really give these people legitimacy or even authority um, on matters that mm. largely impact our lives. You know, I don't know if a lot of people who are in control of the media or who are in these positions to, um, you know, get puff pieces or, you know, get their press releases run. Um, how much are they impacted by by programs like the SRO program? Um you know, what, what, what situation are they in um, when we talk about the, the opioid crisis or when we talk about um, affordability, um, a lot of other things. Yeah. And I'm just going to read this um, just because I'm, I'm like reading it now. And I think it's actually just a pretty good way of almost just summing up our, our mission almost. Um, this just a paragraph from our um, response. So like what we said is our project doesn't have a central goal of appearing balanced to those who are already beholden to mainstream media and passively support systems that have worked against our communities. Rather, we're interested in validating and amplifying community perspectives and experiences, especially those being held down by those systems. So yeah, I think that basically just, um, just sums it up. And uh, what we were pointing out in that previous episode, um, as an example of this media bias, was an old article where an incident at an Edmonton high school prompted a response from the good sergeant Michael Elliott speaking in support of uh, the school resource officer program, of course, and using that violent incident to make an argument for why we should be supporting police presence in our schools. And I'm sure everyone was aware of the, the tragic killing that happened at McNally High School in April. I think something really disturbing that we saw in the aftermath there is more of the same kind of coverage where immediately, um, immediately afterwards, um, 
we see, again, Michael Elliott calling for more uh, support for school resource officers. So there's this article um, from CTV News, Deadly McNally attack begs the question if officers should be back in schools. Police association. And um, as Michael Elliott says, oh my, my heart does go out to the family and to the community for this, but it does beg the question of should the SRO program be looked at again because of the positive effects it can have. I can't tell you if the SRO would have prevented this incident from occurring, but what I can tell you is that I do know that the SROs, when working in the schools that have received notices, quite frequently, unfortunately, that students will come up, slip notes, contact them on Reddit, tell them in private that there is going to be an incident after school. Please be on the lookout. Um, so it's the same kind of parroting of the police talking points that we just tried to bring up in the last episode. And just to be fair to our listener that provided feedback last time, in case you're listening now, uh, the article does um, highlight uh, that the family of the victim says they don't believe SROs would have prevented the attack. They say, I don't support that. I don't think having police at the school would have made a difference. Um, children don't feel comfortable approaching them on a good day. So yeah, technically you could say the article is fair and balanced, but this uh, quote about how the victim's family doesn't support uh, doesn't support this police perspective is at the very end of the article after everyone has clicked away. And I already read the headline of the article earlier, which is deadly McNally attack begs the question if officers should be back in schools, police association. So imagine as this is this article is shared out there on social media as it appears uh, on the uh, on CTV's homepage, what everyone is seeing is this headline: "Deadly McNally attack begs the question if officers should be back in schools." Police association. That's the view that CTV is putting out, uh, and that's what we're talking about when we say that the media parrots police talking points. Yeah, no, I think um, it's it's very disturbing to see things like that, um, and especially in the context of these. Um, or the specific murder at McNally, um, this violent crime that happened, because the circumstances and the context around that crime um, are complex and I'm sure involve details that are unique to that community. But this tragic event gets taken out of its context, gets completely um, used in a sense to yeah advance this SRO program um, across basically hundreds of schools in Edmonton um, because one school had a, a really tragic event happen there. And this is all also happening in the backdrop of what's going on in the States too, which we've, you know, been witness to 20 plus people being murdered in Texas recently and also witnessing how police reacted to this uh, event. And it, it's really difficult to hear how the gunman was basically left in a classroom and police essentially did nothing, um, leaving it to teachers to defend kids, leaving it to parents to try to challenge police only to get arrested and tasered. And I think also just like leaving people with just deep questions about what police are there for. And these are questions that 
so many people have asked themselves for, for hundreds of years, black people, indigenous people, just, just so many people. Um, but to see it happen in this way with these people in Texas, um, I think brings the conversation to, to a different, different place really, because something could have, could have changed this from happening. And that something was, was police potentially. And what they chose to do was essentially nothing. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, we're not, uh, we're not going to try and spin a tragedy to fit our, our narrative, of course, but I think one, one uh, potential takeaway um, from the tragedy in Texas, uh, well, not, I mean, not even a takeaway, but obviously police were there, numerous police were there, and what did that do to keep people safe? What did that do to keep the students safe? Um, I'm just reading from an article here um, about this shooting. So at a press conference on Thursday afternoon, Texas authorities confirmed that the shooter had been locked inside a classroom for an hour before he was confronted and killed. He committed all 21 murders inside that room, including 19 children and two teachers. So the police barricaded the shooter in that room, and that's where he committed all of the murders. So what did the police do here to help? I mean, from reading that, it really just seems like they almost did the opposite. Um, and the article, the article continues, numerous police officers had assembled just outside the room, uh, but did not make any attempt to break through the door during that hour. Uh, instead, they decided to pull back and wait until a specialist tactical unit arrived while evacuating other children and staff from the building. So yeah, just bringing it back to the calls for police uh, presence in schools here in Canada, um, I think the question that we obviously need to ask is where is the link between police presence and student safety? And taking, of course, into consideration the, the harm that the presence of police in schools has on um, students, as demonstrated by the uh, by the research um, that we uh, talked about in our last episode and um, and mentioned here, uh, taking that into consideration, as well as the potentially actively harmful uh, role that police can play in the event of a violent incident, uh, how like what strength does that does that argument have, and. The media is obviously not treating it critically, um, but I think we have a responsibility to really question that view. No, definitely. And I think what you said is also very important about how using these issues to simply bolster like an argument that was had before or to use it as, um, you know, a really good example um, for this like both sides debate or or for um you know a typical left right political argument i think it's pretty cheap and and isn't necessary but i think when it's thought of in in a larger context and also thought of in the sense that institutions and and organizations and even people influence each other 
especially now on a, on a pretty mass scale. So a, depart- a police department in Texas may seem like it's very far and distant from a police department in Ontario or even in Alberta, but conferences exist. Practices are passed down uh, through research, um, through policy adaptations. Um, and these mass shooting events, we, we already know, are, are largely inspired by different mass shooting events, even ones that we see in Canada. So I think it also makes it even more difficult to see things like this tweet by Catherine McKenna, who's a former Minister of Environment and Climate in Canada, where after the previous shooting before this one, the Buffalo shooting um, that killed 10 black people, this tweet that comes out and says, um, quote, reading the news today, I'm very fortunate to live in Canada a diverse and tolerant country that values Mm. freedom while respecting human rights. We aren't perfect, and building our country is an ongoing project, but I wouldn't choose anywhere else. And I have to add, too, there's a heart emoji here, and there's a Canadian flag emoji. And um, She wouldn't choose it anywhere else, probably because of the spicy food. Wait, what? I... (laughs) Okay, anyways. <laughs> this is this joke went way over my head. <laughs> maybe you maybe you can explain the joke to me in my mind. <laughs> no, she said I wouldn't choose to live anywhere else. Oh, because it's spicy food, yeah. yeah that's well, true. Well, yeah, I'll yeah, cut yeah. that from Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think that. if McKenna ate like um some sriracha sauce, it would she would need like five glasses of water. This is this is like low spice uh culture tweet. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very bland uh, chicken seasoning um, tweet. But um, yeah, also incredibly disrespectful and um, incredibly tone deaf. But I think this level of lack of self-awareness, especially in the context of Canadian identity, is only possible here because so much of our country is built on denial and is built on, I think, this performance that we're better than America or that we're exceptional and that we bring these unique things while we just crush marginalized groups regularly. Um, so yeah, no, I have no, um, I have no sympathy for, you know, I think people who, 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 who are this tone deaf and who are this removed from reality, um, that so many people face in this country that, yeah, just choose to, to be cheerleaders for this fictional, fictional place that they might exist in. But yeah, I, I don't know who else does. I guess the answer is other white people. (laughs) Yeah. Canada is, is truly unique, uh, in that we simultaneously inherit, inherit or actively mimic just so many of the, uh, oppressive systems in the United States. We simultaneously do that and compare ourselves favorably to the United States um, in order to the to deny the existence of those um, issues um, and uh, that that tweet that you read like that was after the that what? was after the Buffalo shooting but that that shooter right like was like inspired or yeah, copied his manifesto yeah, yeah from the Quebec shooter um here in obviously in canada 
and, 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 and not only the Quebec shooter too, but like, this is something that rebel news, like I, I watched, uh, I watched a video recently right. that recounted the history of this great replacement and specifically how it was tied to, um, Lauren Southern, who's this basically former rebel news personality, but this was like being pushed heavily in 2015, 16, 17, all these videos right. are wiped off of YouTube now, but these videos inspired people to go into mosques and, and kill people, to go into sh to go into um, grocery stores, kill black people. So, yeah, I, I don't know what to say about this like Canadian exceptionalism. Um, yeah, I don't. It leaves me speechless to just like think that people in this country think that we're immune or that we have no participation in any of this hate or violence. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah, it, it, that um, people uh, committing those kinds of atrocities with those kinds of manifestos obviously don't do it without um, without those ideas um, being a part of the public conscience, and that obviously happens through the media through people in power yeah obviously the fact that that happened here uh and serves then as the inspiration for for the the shooting in buffalo um that that tweet was reacting to is uh just incredibly ironic and just probably the perfect illustration of um of that kind of uh ignorance that we that we have here mm-hmm yeah, speaking of things that we have here, um, this is a good segue to maybe talk about um, something we were talking about before um, relating to the recent um, the recent murders in Chinatown in Edmonton. Me and Nicholas were talking basically about, um, I guess, Chinatown generally and our experiences in that space, but also how the larger downtown has been gentrified and there's billions of dollars of investment literally two blocks away from what essentially amounts to the city's um, unwanted or I guess, um, how could I say this? Um, this is a place where the city has decided it's acceptable to neglect and it's acceptable to essentially, yeah, discard a lot of people, a lot of communities um, into one place so that we can, you know, see our billion dollar investments um, for, you know, what they are, I guess, clean, sanitized, um, you know, problem free spaces. So people can watch Oilers games, people can go about their business while, um, while until recently, you know, we could ignore all the problems that are going on in Chinatown because what's been happening is 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 nothing new it's only reached a boiling point so people I think feel the need to address it um yeah yeah the issues and I mean this is not uh, is obviously not just in in our Chinatown like Chinatown's um everywhere uh kind of just become this um yeah become this this convenient way for um cities to sweep away their issues from the places that they want to make um, palatable um, yeah such as our arena area and um, uh, ice district so really the the issues or the 
yeah, the issues and then the subsequent um, violence that you see in um, in areas like our Chinatown really are a consequence of that system of uh, just neglecting and sidelining um, vulnerable communities. And then, of course, the pattern that we just talk about um, or that we just see um, uh, endlessly um, that uh, those issues then become used in arguments to further support those same systems. So what we saw here in response to the violence in Chinatown and downtown and in um, like LRT stations is calls for greater police funding, um, more police officers in the downtown area. And it's hard not to feel like that's that's uh, very, very deliberately and sinisterly engineered. Like for a politician to say that, oh, or to, to support the idea of uh, more enforcement of the same systems that cause those issues in response to those issues, um, it just feels ridiculous that that's even real it it really does and i feel like a lot of the time reading the news that comes out it's just like um yeah it's very maddening it's very confusing because at the same time um we have this new i guess um decree by um the minister of justice shandro And essentially what he's saying is that the city needs to invest directly into police and they need to do it and have a plan ready within two weeks. And this is the same provincial government that is essentially um, banning safe injection sites um, and banning harm reduction as a policy, which we know is directly connected to the homelessness problem, which we know has a part to play in violence that's happening, but also has a part to play in this narrative of safety that is a big driver for more funding for police. When people talk about safety on the LRT, a lot of the times what you hear people say is there's open drug use here. Why is there open drug use? Because there are no safe injection sites. Because literally in the media, homeless people are being quoted saying that they'd rather inject in a busy LRT station where someone might be able to find their body if they overdose on a toxic drug supply, which we know we can provide these people with a place to use and safer drugs and potential even for recovery. But if our approach is is guided by... Um, I guess, a denial of reality, which is essentially what's going on. And that's not to say that this like realism is the only kind of, I guess, arbiter for um, policy or what to do. But when there's like such a disconnect between what marginalized people are facing and, and this kind of like policy that's coming in that always circles back to giving police more money, it just it doesn't make sense to me. Um, yeah, it's just it's just very problematic. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, so what you're talking about is um, interesting because uh, the mayor put out um, a response to that just uh, earlier today, and 
as part of that, he says, um, we know that the reason we are seeing so much disorder downtown in Chinatown and on the LRT is due to a lack of investment from the provincial government. I don't know, you kind of just mentioned, um, I guess, you know, putting the the province um, at blame for the lack of safe consumption sites. So I guess, to what degree do you agree with the mayor also just, yeah, pinning this on the province uh, and saying that uh, it's out of the city's hands um, to do anything about uh, the situation downtown? It's a, it's a vicious cycle. Um, it's a vicious game of pointing fingers to um, abdicate responsibility essentially on these on these very serious issues because I think it's very easy to simply say that uh, yeah it's the provincial government's fault they aren't giving us enough money or they aren't taking responsibility to to fund and implement programs or or institutions or resources where we need them. Um, but fundamentally, um, I think that not only is that an easy thing to do, but it abdicates responsibility for, you know, who is responsible for this issue being solved. Um, and yeah, simply pointing the finger, I think definitely absolves that responsibility from the people who should be in charge of solving this problem. And I think it's also just like very glaring in the fact that, um, you know, the city isn't incompetent when it doesn't want to be. Um, I think they're very capable of making a lot of things happen for a lot of people. Um, yet on this file specifically, it's time to point fingers. It's time to um, mm -hmm. ask other levels of government what they're doing for us. Um, but ultimately, yeah, like I said, we're responsible for our own citizens. We manage our own safety, at least on this level of government. We're legislated by the provincial government. They have some control and some mandate, but ultimately this is this is our city, you know? So, um, or at least, you know, it's the councilor cities um, that they manage. So, yeah, yeah, no, I think it's a lazy excuse. I, I really do. No, it's a good point. Yeah, like it is really revealing when they choose to start pointing the fingers as the reason for inaction. Um, versus what they really can uh, move move mountains for. And um, I mean, we were just talking about the Oilers um, and I don't know, I guess just like what, what they've been able to organize downtown, what they've been able to corral police resources for um, in, uh, in, in order to facilitate large uh, raucous gatherings of... Um, Oilers fans from St. Albert in the suburbs. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. Um, and it, it, it brings up so many hypotheticals for me where I'm just like, if hypothetically the city was missing uh, money to build the arena downtown because the province wouldn't invest, are you telling me that they would completely abandon the project or continue to play this blame game while diverting responsibility for building it? I really don't think that would happen. And obviously we've seen cases where cities do push back and they don't choose to invest in these, you know, in my opinion, superfluous projects when we have so many other things that are more dire and pressing to, to address. But um, in Edmonton's case specifically, I would bet a lot of money that the city would find a way and that they know their priorities and that they know what they can do and what they can't do. And, and 
ultimately what they can do is let basically um, upwards of 2,000 people out of shelters when they close because the winter is over, there's no more emergency, and have no concrete plan or any attempt to house these people, to figure out shelter space, um, to have, you know, I think more sustainable and realistic uh, encampment policies. Mm. Um, yeah, those things are impossible. But uh, you need yeah. you need a you need a new space to watch the hockey game. We can make that happen in a couple of days. <laughs> it's, it's not that yeah. difficult. And for the that mayor will be happen. there as well. Oh no! Yeah, you get a personal visit for exactly. sure. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. No, that's it's it's because those are the opportunities that politicians like to create for themselves to be uh, visible. I, I think what's also interesting is that in this same statement from the mayor. Um, he says, I want to highlight some of the specific things that we are doing. So he kind of lays out, um, some like different amounts of money that have been allocated to different responses to the violence. Um, one thing he mentions is in February, we approved a transit safety strategy, uh, which includes $3.9 million to add more transit security officers and social workers to the community outreach transit team. And then starting May 22nd, so, uh, so um, yeah, earlier this week, um, the transit community action teams will have a more consistent presence throughout the transit networks. These teams will reduce and prevent crime and disorder in our transit system. Well, okay, so let's break that down. We're spending $4 million to had a transit security officers. So we're investing in more law enforcement in these areas. And starting this week, uh, they're going to have a more consistent presence through the transit networks. So, I mean, based on what we just talked about, like, does, does that, does that uh, go any way towards addressing the issues? Or does that even potentially worsen the issues because now you have more law enforcement personnel who are um, going to be potentially uh, on top of people for just really petty things. Um, and you're actually now increasing the presence of people in in the transit network. Um, when you, Omar, just talked about how people, due to a lack of safe injection sites, uh, are specifically doing... Um, doing drugs on the LRT uh, or in in the in uh, transit areas um, because there are people there. Yeah, no, it's um, it's pretty difficult to I guess contend with with everything that's going on. And um, yeah, I think the city's city's perspective and the city's policies on this, and um, yeah, just seeing how much is being pumped into police when we know that they're a very reactive solution and that so many of these problems are just stemming from neglect, from, yeah, just like abdicating responsibility on, on issues and, and just piling, um, piling on the funding for, for police to potentially make the problem worse for people. Yeah, and then he also mentions that's another thing. Um, I also made a motion last week to approve $5 million to improve safety in downtown Chinatown and at transit stations. 
This money will help to hire social workers or mental health specialists to work with Edmonton Police Service to respond to safety issues in downtown Chinatown and on the LRT. So $5 million for uh, social workers um, and mental health specialists to specifically collaborate with the Edmonton Police Service. Um, okay, well, first of all, how is that not just the same as increasing the police budget by $5 million? Um, you know, is this like a euphemism for that almost? I also think like the way this is worded, you know, when he says $3.9 million to add more transit security offers and social workers, uh, it's almost just worded in a way to say, oh, well, social workers, you like that. Well, look, $3.9 million is going to transit security officers and social workers. So you should be on board with that. Same kind of thing here. We're giving $5 million to social workers and mental health specialists um, in this area, but they have to work with Edmonton Police Service. Um, and like, I guess within their, their purview, um, and, uh, I mean, of course, you know, who has the power in that relationship. So yeah, again, how is this not just adding $5 million to the organization? Um, that's just a part of the system creating these issues. So anyways, $3.9 million to trans security officers, $5 million to, uh, social workers that are going to work with Edmonton police service. And, uh, yet we can't do anything about the disorder it's um, about the source of the disorder itself that's just due to a lack of investment from from the province we can invest oh oh we can invest millions in law enforcement uh to respond to uh to the violence but we really can't do anything to address those um those issues uh due to a lack of investment from from the province um yeah yeah, no. Um, yeah, it's 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 very it's very saddening to see, and um, yeah, this like basic retreat um, I think also fits within um, the larger context of living in Alberta too, of living in a place that's embraced austerity, that's embraced conservative politics so much, where it's completely acceptable and and, and in some ways normalized to conservative politics. We mean that with a small C because we really have all conservative parties. So that's a very good um, point. Just to be clear, I uh, I think we really try to avoid being partisan on this podcast because and it's it, not not in like a both sides or not in a yeah i don't even know i guess you i guess what you're, maybe what you're trying to say is not in a uh both or not in a um we're on one side and the other side is evil but i think in acknowledging or and not in a both sides are also bad but in acknowledging that both sides are are in largely the same mm. and largely have similar goals work within um, a similar ideology and um, yeah I think have very similar interests to um, to rule in, in in a very similar way yeah so, that's such a great way of putting it it's yeah. not that both sides are bad both sides are the same it's yeah. the same yeah. it's the same yeah and I think when, once that acknowledgement is made then you can move beyond a lot of like the the I think unnecessary and and 
yeah, I think the distraction of partisan talking about partisan politics and talking about how we need to criticize the conservatives or we need to um, bolster um, some left political party. In this case, I'll say the NDP because we're in Alberta. But yeah, I think ultimately all you find from discourse like that is either distraction or you're actively contributing to um I think these institutions and these parties that, like I said, are the same or they're, yeah, just actively working against um, the interests of people who are supposed to be yeah. taken care of by by the government, taken care of by um, these institutions. Yeah. So, yeah, like when, when you talk about conservative policies and um, this, like, I guess, yeah, lack of, in, yeah. lack of investment in the kinds of supports and... Um, community initiatives uh, that we that that would actually uh, keep people safe it's it's really like it's ingrained in our in our system and our I don't know I guess I'll, I'll say our culture here but I don't I don't mean that like nobody wants that stuff it's just been People are so used to it being framed in a way that they uh, view as antagonistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then just yeah, like the the last thing that um, he mentions in in his uh, that sorry that the mayor mentions in his response here is just two days ago, city council approved three hundred thousand dollars for the purpose of addressing the immediate and unique needs of Chinatown. We've had two meetings with community leaders to collaborate on. Uh, actions to ensure safety and well-being in the community with another one to be scheduled for June. Um, I think I've been uh, pretty happy to see um, like responses from the community or perspectives from the like Chinatown community, making a point of, uh, of how police presence doesn't address the issues. Uh, that are 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 being faced in uh, Chinatown. Um, I guess acknowledging right, like the the harmful uh, impact of of police on um, marginalized communities, and also combating uh, the idea that defunding police uh, results in violence. Um, I think what I'm a little what I kind of see as red flags are calls for uh, like building trust in institutions um, I just I just you know uh, watched a or listened to a um, like panel discussion today on like uh, hate crimes and um, police response to hate crimes and I think there's there was a lot of focus on uh, how a lack of trust in the police is an issue and also lack of uh, access to reporting hate crimes or accessing the police is an issue. And I think there's maybe not enough criticism of um, uh, just the, the police's existence as an institution or the police's role in society. Um, yeah, what are, your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I, I, I think within this, I guess... Um this conversation about whether or not we should rehabilitate police and equip them to handle these situations or 
whether or not they should be um, removed from these um, situations and we find adequate um, alternatives. Um, it's, it's a difficult thing to propose when there are reforms on the table that claim that they can make the situation better by simply changing the way the police operate. Um, what I think is, um, I think what, what's really important to note is how insular and how, I guess, self-controlling the police are and the number of different events that I think show clearly how unreformable the police are. Um, and I think from that perspective and from understanding um, the kind of, I guess, historical place that the police have had um, in Edmonton, it makes me really hesitant when, um, I guess, the binary is kind of placed where it's like, all we need to do is get police to be better or all we need to do is fix trust with police and that will bring the results that we want. Instead of seriously and critically looking at alternatives that don't involve police and spending the energy that we would spend on reform on things that we already know that are controllable in our own hands, which is coming up with these clear, mm. um, measurable, and I think attainable alternatives to something that we know is already completely reactive and I think causes a lot of harm. So it's, it's almost like having, um, I wouldn't say a blank sheet because there's, you know, there are places where um, I think, you know, police have a role, but those places, in my opinion, are, are very few and far between, at least in the current existence that we have. Yeah. Uh, did, did you end up seeing the the Batman movie? I did, actually. Oh, you did? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. okay. So this obviously has me thinking about that because that, okay, okay, so... Um, in addition to known critics of the police, we are also known critics of film. And my kind of big critique and what kind of what I would say ruined the, the movie for me, at least from a story perspective, is that kind of like bait and switch where it seems to be making a systemic critique of the police and whether whether the people can actually even be served by. Um, by this uh, system that really is just set up to uh, to serve uh, to serve power um, and um, oppress the vulnerable, um, but then in the end they kind of switch to the whole we need to rebuild trust in our institutions, and that's actually I believe a quote right from the film. Um, where the newly elected mayor says we need to rebuild trust in our institutions. So obviously this being a Hollywood movie, it's very prone to, you know, a like neoliberal uh, thesis. But I, I see reflections of that kind of thinking here just in, um, in some of the response from like the, the Chinatown community where it's like, Oh well, the, we need better representation around people responding to hate crimes, or or um, classifying things as hate crimes, or we need better representation on the police force, or we need better training in addiction, or even like we need or um, de-escalation, or even like we need more social workers working with or under the purview of Edmonton police officers. Like these ultimately are not structural changes, um, and 
uh, go more of the route of just rebuilding trust in our institutions um, rather than questioning our institutions um, and skepticism towards our um, institutions. So anyways, yeah, I, I think I, I would just or I, I would hope to see more of that um, skepticism of police. Um, sorry, in um, these uh, conversations that uh, with the uh, mayor. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if you have anything else to add. Um, if you do, then you should. Um, we can definitely talk about it. But I, I think a good way to end the episode might be with this this clip that I just thought of after we've kind of had this back and forth about um, ideas coming from Chinatown um, about reforming police and, and how um, that fits within uh, a more finding alternatives to police. Um, and I'm going to make sure I don't get his name wrong, but Kwame Toure um, mm-hmm. has a really good clip where he just talks about um, the idea of reform, the idea of, um, I guess, abolishing systems. And he puts it through this metaphor of a, um, of a found of the foundation of a house and, and how um, if you have problems with that, it, it kind of, there are, there are different ways of approaching how to solve this problem that we have, essentially. But it becomes difficult, too, if you, don't even, if you don't even get to the point where you acknowledge what the problem is or if you have a differing view, um, which I think ultimately is very influenced by the kind of result that is wanted here. So, you know, if you, if you can, ops, if you can um, blur the lines about how rotten the foundation of our institutions are, if you can deny the fact that to their core um, there, there's been problems here, then you can propose alternatives that are more reformist. But yeah, I think this clip is perfect and um, I think it's, it's a really good way to end the show. But yeah, Nicholas, um, it, was, it was great chatting. Do you have, do you have anything else you want to add? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad we got to have this chat and just work out some of our, some of our thoughts. Um, yeah, labor episode, uh, will hopefully be coming soon. And, um, again, if you have any feedback, please let us know. We would love to hear from you and continue more of these discussions and, uh, hopefully have opportunities to, uh, learn from each other. So yeah, thanks. No, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Nicholas. There's a difference between revolution and reform. It's a big difference. In reform, a man observing a foundation, observing a system, sees many problems. But he assumes that there's nothing wrong with the system. The foundation of the system for him is a good system. Thus, what he seeks to do is to change the building as best he can, but he wants to leave the foundation intact. Example, if I came to this building, it's Ackerman Hall, is it not? If I came to Ackerman Hall and I looked at the foundation, the foundation was falling. It was just falling, couldn't possibly stand. If I were a reformist, I'd say, okay, put a piece of board over that. So we cover the foundation. We haven't touched it. And then I'll come here and say, put a window there. Put a door here. Put a frame here. Put two rooms where there used to be one. What I'm doing is reforming the system. I am trying to make it look different, but I'm keeping the same rotten foundation. You must understand that because this country is full of reformists, black people notwithstanding. And these reformists have a tendency to deceive you to let you believe that things are really being changed when in fact the foundation has not been touched and the longer it stays, the more rotten 
it becomes, the more rotten it becomes. A revolutionary comes into the building, observes Ackerman Hall and says, looks at the foundation and said, hey, this foundation is filthy, it's rotten, it's corrupt, it must be torn up. A new one must be put in its place. Once he makes that decision, and once that theoretical decision which he's made is demonstrated actively in his day-to-day -day life, you have a revolutionary. Thus, a revolutionary is not someone who seeks to reform a system. He's someone who seeks to replace it. I'm a revolutionary. I'm not a reformist. I want the American system destroyed. It must be destroyed and has to be replaced has to be replaced. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Again, I'm not calling for revolution. I see it coming, and I want to be part of the solution. I don't want to be part of the problem. I've been the victim too long, so I want to be part of the solution.